Welcome to the Aquas Podcast. Conversations about regs, funds, and governance with your host, Daniel Lawler. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to the Aquas Podcast. My name is Daniel Lawler. I'm the MD of Aquas and your host for this episode of the Aquas Podcast. If you're new to the podcast, do hit the subscribe button and the like button on the podcast provider that you use so that you're kept up to date as new podcast episodes drop. For this episode, I'm really delighted to be joined by John Finney of Convergence. John's a very interesting guy whose passion happens to be, of all things, compliance. Well, I guess we've all got our crosses to bear. John works with investors, helping them on their investment journey, but he's not looking at investment performance. He's looking at the investment advisor universe and assessing the risks that are associated with individual firms to help investors try and avoid potholes and make informed decisions. How they do that is really interesting. So they look not only at the individual firm and the regulatory filings and other publicly available materials on the firm, but they look across the entire universe. So they're looking at 37,000 firms. And with all of that data, they're able to identify things that might be flags to indicate that there's something in a particular firm that requires further investigation or query as the investor goes about engaging. So allied to that, not only do they look across the universe, but they also analyze regulatory cases and sanctions to try and see is there something in that particular case that that particular firm did uh, or behavior that they exhibited that we can see in other firms in the universe and try and get ahead of making a mistake by, by engaging a firm that displays these types of behaviors. So as I said, incredibly interesting stuff, stuff that uh, and approaches that uh, I wasn't sure or didn't really know existed, but are out there and available to investors as a very valuable so uh, source of information and insight as they go through due diligence process. So listen, sit back, relax, enjoy, and maybe some of John's enthusiasm for the world of compliance will rub off. But in any event, very interesting guy to listen to. So enjoy this episode of the Equest podcast. Well, I'm delighted to have John Finney from Convergence here on the podcast. John, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Thank you, Daniel. Have I got the pronunciation of your surname right, John? Finney. 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 The original spelling, F-I-N-N-A-E. In Gaelic, it means soldier. Oh, uh, and the English... They've anglicized it for you. Uh, and, and <laughs> yes, they did. <laughs> well, listen, uh, thanks, as I said, for coming on. Uh, I'm delighted to have you here and tons of interesting stuff to get through. But let's start with, uh, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm, I'm, I'm betting that somewhere in there, there's uh, experience around science or maths or data or tech, because that's kind of is like where you've landed at this point in your, in your life. Sure. Uh, thank you, uh, Daniel. Um, so going back to the beginning, I'm an accountant by training. I started my career as an accountant in the financial services industry. And um, I, I use my accounting skills to really uh, find uh, opportunities within my employers to really help them uh, build their business. So rather than just uh, do traditional accounting, I tried to take accounting information and apply it to real life business problems to help my employers. Uh, throughout my career, I, I accumulated different skill sets because of my willingness to uh, move uh, to different functions. Uh, I moved from accounting to operations, to technology, to risk management, to compliance. Uh, and uh, along that way, uh, really acquired an appreciation for the value of good information and began to see the difference between uh, winners uh, and others uh, in the financial services space who had good information. The problem with information is in the old days, it was expensive, it was very difficult to find uh, and very difficult to apply. So you're one of those accountants, John. You start out as a, in the accounting space and, and end up with lots of strings to your bows. You, you're the guys that, that run the world, aren't you? <laughs> well, listen, uh, we're, we're hopeless uh, uh, puzzle solvers, meaning we, we love a good puzzle. Uh, we're storytellers. Uh, at the end of the day, we're, we're trying to tell a story. Uh, take accounting. Uh, accounting is the language of business, but it needs to tell a story. So what we try to do is stitch together 
uh, interesting um, uh, environmental factors, interesting business factors, and try to tell a story about it. And sometimes the stories uh, are, 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 are good, and sometimes they're, they're, they're problematic, but they are stories at the end of the day. And so we talk about that story, Dan, that you, uh, you work helping investors to, to make hopefully good investment decisions, but whereas typically investors, when they think about entering the market, they're thinking about market performance and uh, whether it's likely to go up or down, but your focus isn't on the market as much as the investment advisor that the investor is proposing to hire. That's correct, Daniel. The world is uh, chock full of uh, consultants who do a great job at examining the uh, risk and reward of investment returns, and uh, we don't really focus on that. We, we focus on the, the business of the business, meaning running a registered investment advisor. Uh, there are no fewer than seven to eight different functions within advisors uh, for business walls, and those functions have to run well in order for the returns to be generated. Um, we uh, know that the marketplace has overlooked operational risk within advisors traditionally because of the problems I referred to earlier, the lack of data, the lack of meaning, and the lack of storytelling. So we decided to pull that together, connect the dots between data that the RIA puts into the marketplace. Uh, we decided to standardize it, normalize it, and try to find storylines or, or, or narrative within it that could help investors understand the challenges those RIAs face. Uh, this is not about saying an RIA is good or they're bad. This is simply saying that RIA faces challenges that may be faced by others, may not be faced by others. Uh, at the end of the day, the investors should make a fully informed decision when they decide they understand and want the investment return from that advisor. They should also understand the sustainability, uh, operational sustainability, financial sustainability, of that advisor because at the end of the day, if they go away for whatever reason, um, then the, the investor is going to be left on its own to redeploy their capital. So in, in simple terms, the way I think of it, John, you can, you can set me straight here is if I'm an investor and I'm putting my money at risk, I guess there's two things that could go wrong that would give me back less than I put in. One is the market goes against me and the other is that somebody falls over or or uh, something fails on an operational side, that means that I can't get back what I, what I put in. And it's that second piece where your focus is looking at the investment advisors and looking at the risks that they face from an operational perspective and, and a regulatory and compliance and everything else perspective. So how do you do that? How do you, how do you tell that story? Where do you go to for your data to, to try and understand what it is that a, an investment advisor is facing? So we start with, the actual regulatory filings that registered advisors are required to submit to the SEC and other US side regulators. Um, we collect information from the public domain that could include the advisor's website, that could include stories uh, or other information that the advisor puts out about themselves. Uh, we purchase some data from third party commercial sources that uh, themselves are pulling information in from the public domain, particularly the regulatory environment that we just feel is more effective and efficient. So we're collecting, um, you know, as much information as we can from the marketplace, uh, you know, independently of the advisor. Um, and we're using that data to begin the construction uh, of the business profile. So if you think about uh, yourself, if you were an RIA, you're, you need to file a Form ADV, uh, you need to file a Form D, you need to file 13FD&G as appropriate. Uh, you also file uh, as an investor Form 990, you file Form 5500. There's lots of regulatory filings out there. The challenge for the mere mortal, the investor, is that the information they need to, to understand about the risk profile of that advisor is actually there. But a, it's, it, it, to, the to the untrained eye, uh, it's kind of hidden in plain sight, meaning it's there, but you really don't understand it until convergence really comes in, pulls it together, and creates that storyboard where we can say sensibly to a reasonable person, a reasonable investor, this is what an entity looks like. And, and because we standardize this over 
you know, 37,000 registrants and we've created this standard look and feel, you can begin to study the differences between them. Me, and I'll give you a simple example, Daniel. If you're an advisor and you're, you report to one regulator, so you have a compliance organization that needs to provide information to one regulator, well, your business model will be structured in a certain way. It's not a, a far-fetched uh, um, uh, assumption to make if you then move from one regulator to five regulators. Well, a reasonable person would assume that you're going to have to change. There's going to be changes to your compliance department, changes to your operational uh, risk management, uh, accounting functions to provide the inputs to compliance in order to now comply with five regulators. So convergence would say in very simple terms that advisor A, who has one regulator, versus advisor B who has five regulators, we would assume there would be operational differences between the two that need to be managed. And we're not saying they're not being managed, we're simply saying one would expect that advisor two would have more resourcing applied to compliance than advisor one. Therefore, we would say that from a regulatory and compliance point of view, that advisor number two is more complex. No one would argue that point. The question is, is it being managed? And we're not judging that. We're not saying it's being managed and we're not saying it is being managed. We're simply saying you, the advisor, look, if you're working with this advisor, be aware they have five regulators and that may be consistent or inconsistent with the marketplace. These are just statistical evaluations we perform, but at the end of the day, it's a roadmap for you to discover what they're doing to maintain compliance with five regulatory bodies. Right, so as you receive and, and mine this, presumably pretty substantial amount of data received through filings and other public sources. I guess, what are the, the key questions that you asked yourself about this that would maybe say, lead you to identify flags that make you think there's something here that is a risk that I wouldn't see in peer firms? So I would start by saying there's some very pragmatic and, and simple truths in the marketplace, uh, things that everybody would understand. For example, uh, simple control standards like the segregation of duties. So let's start with that because that's a pretty simple one. <clears throat> if you have an advisor and they have a CCO and that CCO is also its CFO or its chief investment officer, uh, then that set of duties may conflict with each other. Meaning the role of compliance is to be the independent uh, a check and balance in many cases between the activities that are taking place within the organization, the LPs or the investors and their, and their requirements and also regulatory requirements. When you have combinations of functions in certain manners, like the one I just described, let's say it's the, the CCO and the CFO. Um, at the end of the day, there, there, there is conflict there. That's a fundamental violation of segregation of duties. Now, there could be compensating controls in place to counter that, but we start with some simple things that, are, that everybody would recognize. But then we apply some advanced statistics, which is probably uh, more keen to your, your question. Um, if you were to learn in examining that advisor with the, the conflicted CCO, we call it, <clears throat> that only 3% of advisors in the marketplace had that condition, that's a statistical anomaly, meaning it's, it's, it's very different than the market practice of separating the function. So, by itself, you might not like the fact that, you know, your, your advisor has a conflicted CCO, but if you now couple that with a statistical overlay that says, hey, wait a minute, um, <laughs> there are only 3% of them out there, uh, that changes the discussion a little bit. The question for the investor is why, right? Why, why have they decided to structure themselves that way when everyone else is different? So that's just an example of how we examine mountains of data for statistical anomalies. And I just want to say something that's important. This is not theory. This is really reality, meaning we have studied over 200 cases that involve wrongdoing, advisor wrongdoing, meaning they hurt investors financially. And we've examined these conditions and these factors that I'm describing, and we've modeled them against those cases. And you see very clear and distinctive patterns. And again, we're not saying that somebody is bad. We're simply saying you, the advisor, should be aware, or the investor should be aware, that this advisor has a very complex business model, number one, and two is 
that complexity has hurt other investors and similarly structured advisors. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's taking the theory and putting it into practice. Yeah. And it's the way that I guess you're able to join the dots that, that makes it so exciting, really what it is that, what it is that you do or what it is that you can do. I guess say, as you work through this mountain of data, I'm assuming that's not a, an army of poor sods that have to do this for you, that, that this is a very much a technology driven solution and that, that as you program that, uh, that software or that approach, you're, you're kind of mining these previous cases and you're saying, yeah, if we see that, that's something that's, um, that's something that's of interest. We should flag that. Is that, is that, have I got a kind of a very basic idea of that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we use um, very advanced technology. It's called robotic process automation or RPA. We have 400 algorithms that interrogate data for anomalies or, or things that are unusual. Uh, and by the way, um, uh, you know, we, we, we're, we're not a large firm. We, we have about 20 people worldwide, uh, but we, we're heavy users of technology to identify exceptions. We reach out to uh, uh, advisors, RIAs in the marketplace, when we see some of these statistical anomalies. In many cases, they're errors, and we perform a, a public good and a public service by, by pointing these things out to them. And it happens from time to time. And by the way, it happens with the largest <laughs> of advisors. It happens with the smallest of advisors. So in a way, you know, we're trying to ensure that what our technology sees when it gets kicked out into the, into the hands of an analyst that an analyst basically goes to the source to determine, is this real or is this imagined? Now, at the end of the day, when someone hangs up on you, which happens, you begin to form a, a judgment or a view around that particular RIA. Um, in most cases, they don't hang up on us. In most cases, they do respond, and they're very grateful for the insight. Uh, and we're talking about errors and omissions and things that they just missed. What we're trying to understand is historically, how is an advisor embracing compliance and what is the quality of the firm's commitment to compliance? And by examining the output, meaning their regulatory filings and looking at the quality of them, meaning the accuracy, looking at omissions and inconsistencies and looking at frequencies and how often do they file, you can form this view that statistically over time, it does, it does say something about the advisor's commitment to compliance because yeah. an advisor that makes errors year in and year out across multiple uh, regulatory filings, um, their organization isn't as well, let's say, oiled uh, and integrated as perhaps others who make far fewer. Yeah. Right? So we can see that kind of distribution and say, listen, it's like the classic bell curve. You get people on the right of the, of the bell curve, and those are your best practices. Those people have better scores than 84% of everybody else. Then you get the great middle, and don't get me wrong, the middle, you can have issues, but the middle is consistent with the marketplace. It's the people in the left-hand side that the regulators worry about because they're showing a habitual set of, creating a habitual set of outputs that just aren't quite up to snuff. And that's where we try to focus our attention on that tail. Now the tail, remember, is 16% of 37,000 advisors. So it's not an inconsequential number, but it's just something that people should be aware of when they're doing their diligence. And so when you're looking at individual firms and you find something in that firm that is an anomaly or that raises a flag for you, whether it is number of roles concentrated in the same individual or a pattern of errors in regulatory returns over a period. Um, does that information then lead to change within the, the firm that you've reviewed? And is that kind of driven by the firm itself, a direct interaction between you and the firm? Or is it, well, uh, if you talk to 100 clients and 100 clients realize that there's this risk in one firm that all the, uh, all the roles are concentrated in the individual, next thing they won't use that firm so the market kind of drives the change yeah we're we're big fans of what's called nudge theory so nudge theory is when you when you have a client base like convergence does and we deal with all of the world's leading providers and, and investors and you name it um, when we put out these observations these insights about these 
you know, anomalies, we'll call them. Um, they're able to engage, if you will, with, you know, maybe it's an audit firm that's doing business with that RIA. Maybe it's an administrator, maybe it's a compliance firm, maybe it's a prime broker. But the industry by and large can self-correct when there's transparency, okay? And even though, and I'll use the conflicted CCO, even though the argument can be made that, listen, I'm too small to be able to afford the separation, all we're going to offer is the following. Well, that may be all, that may be fine, but there are certainly other advisors of your size that have made the decision that it's good for business to separate the functions. So where there's a will, there's a way. And by sharing and being transparent with the marketplace, all the constituencies I mentioned, we see this self-correction, Daniel, that you mentioned, right? The industry by and large is committed to, you know, being honest and transparent. And it's always the few apples that can spoil it for everybody. And the bottom line is by being transparent and, and pushing this information in a very thoughtful and gentle and constructive way uh, to the community of, 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 of service providers that work with these RIAs, we think the messages get across. We publish a lot of white papers on uh, what we call constructive suggestion, meaning we did a study on asset raising or capital raising between companies with, who have unconflicted CCOs and companies that have conflicted CCOs. And the, and the data is, is clear. Companies with segregated CCOs grow faster. So we can make the argument, data-driven argument. It's not a philosophy. It's I don't have a, a bone to pick with this issue because I understand it as, as having come from the industry. I understand these pressures. But at the end of the day, it's good for business. <laughs> so yeah. if it's good for business, why wouldn't you embrace it and adopt it? So we sort of try that approach. And, uh, you know, we're not out there to point fingers and to say, you know, uh, you know, uh, you should be careful. You shouldn't do business with these people. We're saying when you make a decision to invest with an RIA, make sure you understand the business model they run, why they run it, the inherent risks within it, and that you're comfortable with it. Yeah. Well, I, what you say there about nudging better behaviors really resonates as, a, as an ex-regulator. So if you're, if you're a financial regulator, there are different tools in the toolbox to change behaviors. And that kind of the most extreme end you're talking about rulemaking or even enforcement and sanctioning but at a, at a, a more a less intrusive end I beg your pardon it's nudging better behaviors and so ideally a, a regulator would never have to intervene because the market would move firms along to a better place in terms of how they go about compliance let's say so if a firm cannot get any investors to uh, work with it because it doesn't have very good compliance practices well, it might change its compliance practices to make it better in order to encourage people to, to become clients of the firm. And that kind of approach of nudging better behaviors requires less market intervention or you know, less impactful from that perspective and, and would be the preferred way that uh, the regulator or, or the market changes how providers act. So it, it's very interesting and it's something that regulators can try to do and sometimes it works and sometimes you just need to put a gun to firms heads to, to change what they're doing. <laughs> well, listen, um, you know, I start with, you know, conversion starts with simple troops, right? No, no one starts a, a registered investment advisor um, to do anything other than to make money, right? Uh, and to make money, they have to invest really well. Um, they have to generate performance returns that are at or above expectation. Um, and they have to uh, grow their assets, right? The world is complicated. Uh, generating uh, investment return, forget about generating alpha, but generating investment return is, is a very difficult uh, challenge. And uh, it's a crowded market and uh, complexity is, uh, is necessary. You need to become more complicated or complex over time in order to generate returns because the market in theory is perfect. Information is, is, is shared. And at the end of the day, everyone starts you know, replicating what each other does. So you see the pressure, if you will, on businesses where, you know, take fee compression or down markets, where at the end of the day, you see the businesses themselves, I mean, not the investment process, but the infrastructure of businesses begin to be taxed by complexity. <clears throat> 
is the RIA hiring into complexity? Are they changing service providers and what are they doing to manage that complexity? If I said to you that, you know, five years ago when I invested in, uh, you know, Daniel LLC, you were a uh, low complexity uh, advisor and then you know, five years later, you're a high complexity advisor. That means some fundamental features of your business have changed. And, and all the investor needs to know is like, hey, Daniel, tell me what you've done over the last three or four years to get out in front of that complexity. Um, the problem is it costs money, right? Uh, supporting uh, operational risk costs money. And a lot of these uh, advisors are pressured. So they tend not to invest sometimes the way they should. And this is where we begin to see the stresses that I referred to. And stresses create problems for regulators because if they can't see them and they don't, don't react to them, to your point, um, nudge theory aside, <laughs> they're trying to survive. But the regulator is there to make sure that at the end of the day, they see these things, they address them, and they themselves are able to reach out and touch these communities so that they say, listen, we understand what you're going through. Um, and by the way, you know, just we may come in and, and want to talk to you about what we see is a significant shift in your business model over time towards high complexity. And by the way, we don't see the corresponding increase in your headcount. Yeah. So we want to understand what you're doing to manage that risk because the LP at the end of the day, you know, we didn't talk about this, but, you know, listen, you can lose money on the investments and they all accept that, but no investor knowingly wants to accept non-investment risk or, or operational risk. They just don't understand it. And they don't want to accept it. If it's there, they may make a decision to go elsewhere where it's, it's, it's less than it is maybe in, in the options they have in front of them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and certainly that is something that a, a regulator would flag where you, you know, you see it where a, a, a firm becomes authorized and in its early days, it has a certain operating model and concentration of, roles and individuals or, or whatever it is. And then you look at that firm a few years later and they've been successful and they've grown and their assets under management are bigger, but you look at the operating model and it's essentially the same and it hasn't kept pace with the increased nature scale complexity. That's how we, we describe it in Europe, nature scale complexity. And that can be, that can definitely be something that if you are a regulator, you want to start asking questions and understanding. Likewise, if you're, if you are an investor. But one of the things you mentioned, John, I think this is interesting. I guess when you review materials that are available in relation to an individual firm, if there are breaches or late filings or whatever, from that you can kind of get a certain understanding. But it's more where there's no evident breach, but you're trying to understand, is it a good idea? Is it, is it normal for a firm like this to have all of the roles concentrated in an individual or to use this particular type of approach to compliance? Uh, and I guess it's the fact that you look across a number of peer firms, then you can say, although this isn't a breach, so it's not going to raise a very obvious flag with the regulator, you're actually out of step with market practice because we can see what 37,000 other uh, regulated investment advisors are doing. And that's that's kind of how, how you guys approach it. Is that right? Yes, and certainly in part. I mean, uh, there's a lot of mathematics in this, meaning we're studying the 37,000. And I just want to be clear to the audience that, you know, there's thousands of flavors of peers. You know, you've got to break it down by, you know, is it a hedge fund? Is it a private equity fund advisor? What's the strategy of the, of, of the advisor? Is it multi-strat, long short equity, distressed credit? Like it all breaks down into peer groups, just to be clear. It's like, we're not comparing apples and oranges here. We're comparing peer groups, right? So that's really important. But your point is critical. When we see, and I'm making up a number, right? And just to illustrate. If we see uh, out of a thousand observations, when someone moves from one level of complexity to another, when I see, let's just say, 80% of the market ha has, has changed their headcount or upgraded their service providers or named a third-party compliance firm to support them, we seek evidence that the change has been met by an action taken by the RIA. If I see in 80% of those cases, and I'm just making up a number, that the marketplace has moved to react to that change as complexity increases, then the question is what's going on with the 20%? 
okay? And then you start to study the 20%. So we call it the test group. We start to examine them in a lot of different ways. Uh, we are in the marketplace all the time. We're doing business, as I mentioned earlier, with the world's leading providers. Um, and again, we share information with them. We're saying, hey, listen, we're seeing a trend with 80% of the market. And by the way, some of your clients aren't trending that way. Uh, their risk is certainly trending up, but they're not trending that way as well. This goes back to the nudge theory. We're trying to use our community of service providers and subject matter experts who work with these advisors to try and help them understand by exposing this transparency to them, which they don't know. Like that you may be thinking, hey, I'm doing the best I can, but if I told you that 80% of your peers are doing certain things that you're not, the question really is for you to consider, well, why are they doing things that I'm not? And why am I different? Am I really that different? And the answer is you're not. <laughs> you know, listen, don't be wrong. The investment process is quite unique uh, and idiosyncratic to a firm. But I'm not talking about the investment process. I'm talking about post-investment. A trade is a trade is a trade. If it's a long short equity trade, there's a certain process. If it's a distressed credit loan or whatever, it's a process, right? So the similarities are quite clear with what we do, which is how are you managing the change and what evidence do we see or not see uh, as you're moving up that curve? Um, again, not to go back to studies that we've done, but we see a very strong correlation. It's in the high 80s between advisors who do not increase their complexity and those going out of business. Wow. Because listen, at the end of the day, you know, everyone on this call and listens to this podcast will know this. Your investment process is what you live by. In order to continue to generate return, you need to change because the market's perfect and everyone's going to follow everybody. And so in order to be different and differentiate yourself, your investment process has to change. By definition, your non-investment processes change. And, and I'm not going to cite former employers, but they specialized in complex transactions. That's why their alpha and their returns were outstanding. Their business model reflects that complexity. Obviously, with that kind of complexity uh, profile, they've invested significantly in infrastructure. So at the end of the day, when an investor comes in and says, hey, talk to me about your, how you're supporting the investment process, they roll out a very well thought out, elaborate set of procedures that are relevant to their complexity level. They weren't always that complex, by the way, it happened over time. And this is where we see the biggest problems for investors. They invest in someone today, and it's three years later, and that's a different firm. The market's different that they're operating in, and that firm is different. And the question is, is the operational risk that they may or may not even have been aware of on day one, but has it changed from, day, from the time I invested in that advisor? And if it has, listen, am I aware of it, number one? And two, am I aware of the controls that have been, been implemented to manage that risk? And if the answer is yes to all of that, then fantastic. But the sad reality is that most managers in the 200 cases that we've studied that have blown up and have hurt investors, they went through this, this complexity increase over time, did not take the steps necessary. I think they were buy, trying to buy some time as they got their investment process together and retract their performance returns, but their operations suffered and breaks occurred. Financial statements, NAV restatements, you know, um, operational errors, um, outright frauds, <laughs> et cetera, uh, happen when these business models start to feel stress. And it's very clear, and the beauty of what we do, Daniel, is we're looking at 37,000 observations. This is not looking at a law firm and their 150 clients, okay? This is an entire view of the market that's very well structured, very well segmented, very well peered in terms of the groupings of the analytics. And what we're really hoping for and our objective, and this is why we, we founded the firm, is the elevated transparency for everyone will help everyone, will help the, the, yeah. the RIAs and the investors and their service providers all with the problem of how do we work together to make things better. And how do market conditions feed into 
into that. So are there market conditions that make it more likely that uh, an investment advisor is going to have difficulties around operations and, and that, or is that something you can kind of predict in advance that if the conditions are like this, then there's more of a, a risk that a firm will do that? Well, listen, there's um, sometimes uh, there are bad people and it doesn't matter what the markets, what's happening in the market. Bad people are bad people, and uh, it, it, it doesn't matter. They're, they're there to, to do bad things. Um, however, let's talk about market pressure. Uh, market pressure affects management fees and performance fees, uh, the lifeblood of an RIA. Um, if uh, fees are being compressed uh, and um, uh, performance and incentive fees are, are being uh, compressed, uh, then there's going to be pressure on the manager to support its business. To, that's the sustainability comment I made earlier. Um, and what we have seen, and again, we're talking about 200 cases, mind you, we have seen problems with valuation, trade allocations, uh, and um, I'll leave it at that for now, to the right. two easy ones, right? You know, when we see that an increase in valuation and, and what we call um, alloc trade allocation issues when organizations are stressed by the markets. Forget about complexity, that's a different stress. Market stress or market created stress puts an immediate uh, uh, fee pressure on the advisor and this is financial sustainability is at risk. So what you end up seeing in case, certain cases is that the flexibilities, if you will, that some advisors uh, have, have negotiated uh, with their uh, their investors, their LPs, which the LP is not really fully aware of what they've done to themselves, but they, they create these problems. So we've seen inflated asset values with illiquid securities. We have seen uh, trade allocations, meaning favorable trade allocations going into co-investment vehicles with a heavy internal ownership uh, level. Um, we've seen expense allocation challenges, meaning these expenses weren't being you know, charged to the LPs previously, but now they are, okay? So, so the advisor, and again, they're critically dependent on these fees to maintain their investment process. Um, and by the way, no RIA will tell you that they wanna be known as a great operational company. They wanna be known as a great investor. And all this other stuff that we're talking about non-investment activities, right? The seven or eight functions that comprise that. It's just something they have to do, right? And, they, and some yeah. of them maybe want to do it better than others, but it's, it is a constant challenge. And at the end of the day, if they could outsource everything, they would. They don't want to do any of this. Yeah. And yeah. by the way, that, that's okay. I mean, that's, but, but the industry grew up this way and now it's trying to sort itself out because it's just in a bit of a dilemma right now around this notion of who bears what expenses, because at the end of the day, it's, it's the economic pressure creates the bad behavior that I'm referring to. And you know, you can see it in the documents and you can see it in the disclosures that people make. Some, some are very tight and some are very loose. Yeah, but I guess, I guess now armed with that insight, if I am allocating assets to an investment advisor or have done and I'm doing my annual review or whatever it is, uh, knowing how this part of the market cycle can cause firms to maybe misbehave around valuations or asset allocations. I guess my questions around valuations and, um, sorry, uh, how transactions are allocated gets higher up my, uh, my list of questions for my meeting with my potential investment advisor or my annual review meeting. So it can really inform where you put your energy this year compared to maybe where you put it last year or where you might put it next year. Yes, absolutely right. And how does this, like, it strikes me that um, regulators must be quite interested in the kind of insights that you might pull out. So if you identify firms from your analysis that are outliers or that maybe show signs that there's more risk there than there would be in another firm, that must be something that, that um, a regulator would find interesting. Well, you know, it depends on the regulator. I mean, uh, I'll use the, um, you know, the SEC as an example. Um, the SEC um, has been very transparent about their use of uh, data science and data analytics. Uh, five years ago, they, uh, they received, uh, you know, a budget 
uh, to invest substantially in this expertise. Uh, and they themselves are out there, uh, you know, uh, when they create what's called targeted exams or who they're going to visit, et cetera, they use what's called a risk-adjusted methodology uh, to do that. Now, it, it's no um, coincidence, by the way, that 80% uh, of convergences uh, uh, of the 200 cases that we've studied for investor wrongdoing or, or, or you know, involving investor uh, wrongdoings, 80% um, of them, these, these advisors had a very high risk rating or risk uh, profile from convergence. Um, and by the way, you know, statistically, you know, I almost sort of scratched my head saying that's not possible. It can't be that strong. But when you think about it, the answer is, well, the regulators are sort of thinking similarly. <laughs> so when the, regulators, when the regulators go out and they're fishing from a barrel of high risk rated uh, advisors, well, I'm going to have a very high overlap, overlap, right? Meaning my, you know, I feel, I feel that convergence is like, Hey, I can identify, you know, high risk rated managers and high correlations between wrongdoing and ratings. But the reality, I think, and I'm, I'm trying to, I'm a little self deprecating on this issue. I should perhaps give the company more credit, but, but I suspect part of it's that, you know, the SEC is doing the same thing. The SEC is risk rating advisors. They're looking at exactly, not the identical conditions, because we certainly have proprietary data that we create, if you will. It's, it's new content that reveals different things about an advisor. But I, it's very clear to me that the SEC is using advanced data science and analytics do exactly what I'm describing. And the message really for the audience and the investors and also the advisors is, look, what you don't know can hurt you. Some RIAs inadvertently invite inspection, uh, regulatory inspection, because they don't understand how unusual they look. And if they understood how unusual they look, particularly the ones I go back to sitting in the left-hand side of a distribution curve, uh, meaning that their scores in whatever capacity are, are lower than 84% of the market. Well, the SEC's view is where there's smoke, there's fire. Uh, they're looking at multiple inputs. And by the way, they have more data than I have, <laughs> believe me. Uh, but uh, the high correlation between our risk ratings and these, these bad actors tells me that, listen, they're on this trail. They've been on it for five years <clears throat> um, and they're investing heavily in it. So so, you know, we believe that, you know, again, this, you know, I call it the um, informal public-private partnership uh, that we believe, uh, you know, we have with the SEC vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the work we do, the work they do. It's all driving towards the same objective, which is how do we create more transparency? How do we improve the investors' insights into this very complicated question? Operational risk is very complicated, and that's why the marketplace is what we call neutral, meaning they're almost agnostic on this issue. And when you look at some of the most celebrated disasters in the, in the marketplace, uh, Madoff and others, and I won't name them all, there's multiple examples of firms that blew themselves up for a lot of different reasons, but the evidence was hidden in plain sight. Yeah. At the end of the day, that's the point. The SEC is pushing for transparency. They just awarded, by the way, uh, an independent firm uh, uh, monet a monetary award for pointing out certain things about a publicly traded company's disclosures. So you can see how the SEC and its transparency objectives is enlisting the help and support of other firms to give them their perspective. Yeah, it's an inter interesting way to incentivize. And you're absolutely right. I, my, my sense is that the US and, and the regulators there are a bit ahead of, say, European regulators when it comes to their sophistication in using data. But certainly here and internationally, the trend is towards transparency, more regulatory reporting, and then within the regulator to have data analytics or have the, the skills and the, the tech and, and the expertise there to, to do something with the data that you're receiving to try and raise the flags or identify the flags that you're talking about there, John. But I know time is against us. It's been a tremendously interesting uh, conversation. I had two questions before we wrap up. The first is, as you look across the, the 200 cases um, that, that involve wrongdoing um, and you look for correlations, was there any correlation in there that kind of jumped out as you being as something that you didn't expect or you, you, said, you would say, really, I didn't think that A would have led to B? Um, well, there's two that I'm going to uh, just give you a minute on. And, and one is that we've already talked about. So the conflicted compliance officer is very prominent across those 200 cases. So that's one. The 
The other one is compensation arrangements, meaning the more ways the advisor can get paid by its LPs, the more grade exists around the edges between those types of compensation. And that's where we see a lot of, we'll call them shenanigans <laughs> uh, happening, okay? Uh, so, you know, in the, in, the, in the traditional like alternatives market, you got a, a management fee and you got a performance fee, it's pretty clear, <laughs> okay? Well, when that starts to change and you start to see, for example, uh, broker-dealer commissions, or you see um, uh, other business activities, things like uh, 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 monitoring fees and investment banking fees and loan origination fees and like all of the ways that an investor can get skinned, legally skinned by an advisor. This is where we see again, a high correlation where we say, look, nobody can police these things internally quite the way they need to. So you see them time and time again. Those are your two, I'm gonna say, most prominent areas in the 200 cases. And don't get me wrong, there's a, there's a long list, but those two yeah. you, you see almost all the time. All right, uh, excellent. And the last question I have for you, John, is uh, as you look at the market today and the state of the world today and, and COVID and high unemployment and, and markets kind of bouncing around a little bit, um, are there are there some key factors in that now that if you were or as you meet investment advisors, you've got top of your list as being the ones that for today or maybe for the next 12 months are ones that I'm interested in and, and probably ones then that will make their way onto the work programs of regulators. Yeah, I think I'm going to talk about stress um, because stress is um, uh, and this is the term I use, uh, Daniel. Um, uh, trying to observe stress in an organization is almost like watching the grass grow. Um, it's very difficult to see until the grass is high enough and you go, oh, <laughs> I have a problem. <laughs> I got to cut the grass, right? Uh, uh, operational stresses uh, are subtle, uh, but they exist. And convergence watches the stress in organizations across the globe and, and we watch you know, overlays and markets and all kinds of conditions. But at the end of the day, uh, we're seeing significant compliance stress. Um, and compliance stress is, is a real problem because uh, it's not only gonna hurt the advisor, it's gonna hurt the investor as well uh, if, if a problem happens. The problem with compliance stress, and we see it loud and clear, and it's, it's, it's pretty black to us, but it's not the compliance department's issue, generally speaking. It's an organizational issue, meaning the inputs that go to compliance in order for them to meet uh, their compliance requirements are not of a high enough quality. So when you see uh, kind of there's always a standard amount of stress out there at the end of the day, but what we're seeing is an increase there's been a notable increase. And again, like it's sort of like watching the grass grow, right? The grass got a little taller, faster uh, recently because it's all COVID related. Uh, remote workforces, uh, service providers, like the entire ecosystem that's supporting RIAs today has changed. It's all virtual or most of it. It's very difficult sometimes to, to feel and get a sense of confidence, if you will, in talking to somebody over a virtual net. When you go there and you're talking with people and you do a day in the life and you, you walk the floor and you look at the operation and you ask for this and you talk to people and you get a, a sense of their, their, their essence and their, their capabilities you know, in, the, in, the, uh, in the real world, that goes away in the virtual world. So what we're seeing is significant increases in stress. It started with the uh, kind of right at the beginning of COVID, we'll say in March of 2020, we've seen significant uh, uh, increases in stress. By the way, it's, 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 it's blind to size, it's blind to strategy. It's, it's pervasive, it's stress wow. everywhere, right? Um, so my comment to investors and, and to regulators and, and, and just uh, general uh, academics who, who may uh, find this all fascinating is pay attention because things are happening that may lead to the sustainability question. You know, uh, in theory, managers are, are gonna react to those stresses in a constructive and positive way, but we're not seeing it. We've seen a, 
a cessation, if you will, a sort of a, a, a temporary halt to the types of, of activities that, or, or, or reactions that we normally see. And by the way, you're talking about organizations that have hundreds of billions of dollars under management, right? At the end of the day, it's, it's, it's no, there's, there's something out there that's changed. And, um, and I think at the end of the day, everyone's trying to figure it out. Uh, and all I can say is that, uh, you know, what we're offering in the sense of transparency and data and analytics and, you know, what people desire, it's just trying to help improve the conversation. So I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. Thanks very much, John. That, that, that closing remark is, is very useful and insightful. Um, as we, we get used to where we are today and, and, uh, to, to just, I think we kind of sense that stress and, and the new operating model is probably something that merits attention. But the, the piece about how, how you would expect actions to follow and how they're kind of lagging in this market, that's very interesting. And there, I, maybe there is that sense of firms kind of sitting on their hands or, or just trying to get to grips and not really moving, moving as far forward uh, on, say, things like compliance as, as you would expect. So thank you very much, John. I really appreciated having you on the podcast. Great to get those insights. It's a, it's a world that we uh, know a little bit about, but not very much. And so what, what you've been able to share with us today uh, really helps, I think, all of our, our understanding and gives us some interesting questions to ask as we meet with investment managers, for example, and do due diligence or otherwise ask, and acquire, and observe, and challenge how they do what they do. So thanks very much, John. You're welcome, Daniel. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to share the information. Uh, great. And listen, thank you very much, listeners, to the Equest podcast. We shall catch you in the next episode. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Aquas podcast. For information about our training and advisory programs or our academy, visit aquas.ie. For more resources on RECs, funds, and governance, check out our YouTube channel, Daniel Lawler, R-U-R-Q.